on. I'm on three seats. <laughs> Look, there goes the game. You're listening to Ithaca Now, WICB's weekly news program focused on stories in the Ithaca community. I'm your host, Tara Lynch, and thank you for joining us. Tonight, we hear how local nonprofits are struggling in the pandemic. So when you think about the funding structure of community nonprofits, there is a direct line to lost revenue across each one of them. We get a look at how Ithaca High School is taking to hybrid education. But I'm doing a lot better online. I think I'm actually going to go completely virtual. And we interview local professor and activist Dr. Nia Nunn. Southside Community Center as one of the many spaces, um, historically black community center. But first up, let's hear what's going on in the Ithaca area with our community beat. Mayor Svante Myrick announced his involvement in a nationwide Defend the Black Vote project aiming to educate and inform black voters about the upcoming election. More details about the project and volunteering can be found on Mayor Myrick's social media pages and on the Ithaca Voice. A car crash early this Saturday on Seneca Street left a Trumansburg man seriously injured and hospitalized. The 19-year-old man was in his car when it rolled over, striking a work trailer and many parked cars. The man remained stuck in the car for 25 minutes as the Ithaca Police Department shut down the road and firefighters worked to get him out. He suffered head and neck injuries for which he was taken to Upstate Medical Center in an ambulance as a helicopter that was called was unable to arrive due to weather conditions. He is presently stable but in serious condition as per Ithaca Police. Murder and mayhem at Grove Cemetery Ghost Walks will be conducted on both Friday and Saturday evenings in Trumansburg on October 30th and 31st starting at 6.30 p.m. each night from the chapel by the cemetery entrance. The walk will have historical dramatic vignettes done by members of the Encore Players Community Theater written by the Town of Ulysses historian. Friday afternoon saw Make America Great Again rally in Ithaca, countered by an even bigger demonstration by Ithaca's chapter of the Democratic Socialists of America. The opposing protests, which began peacefully at 4 p.m., eventually saw burning Trump signs and blocked traffic. The Trump supporters, carrying Blue Lives Matter flags and gathering before the Republican campaign storefront, a recently opened office on Meadow Street, were denounced by the DSA members, who associate Trump's politics with racism and fascism, and refuse to accept those ideologies in Ithaca. Ithaca College has said that they are committing to an in-person semester for the spring, unless local, state, or federal mandates prevent a return. There is currently no decision on students who are from states on New York's travel advisory list, and there will be no spring break during the semester, but instead, five individual days will be taken off throughout the spring. Two new positive cases of COVID-19 in the area prompted Tompkins County Health Department to send out alerts of possible COVID exposures. The exposures could have occurred in three locations at the following times. Wegmans at Meadow Street on Wednesday, October 7th between 5 to 8.30 p.m. 
Ithaca Ale House on Friday, October 9th between 7 to 8.30 p.m. or Saturday, October 10th between 2.30 to 4 p.m. Liquid State Brewing Company on Green Street on Saturday, 10th of October between 4 to 7 p.m. For Jay Bradley, I'm Himadri Seth, WICB News. The pandemic's economic effects are nothing to shake off, especially for small nonprofits. Correspondent Antonio Fermi spoke to Ben Sandberg, director of the Tompkins County Center for History and Culture, on how his and other local nonprofits have struggled and had to adjust. When the COVID-19 pandemic started back in March, the nation entered a massive recession. On a local level, nonprofit organizations have seen their sources of revenue depleting, and in some cases, disappearing completely. Ithaca is home to an abundant amount of community nonprofits that all add their own distinct qualities to the city's robust atmosphere. And now, their chances of surviving are slimmer than ever. This is a topic I've wanted to cover for months now, as it's one I think more people need to understand. And if there's one person I know who understands nonprofit community organizations in Ithaca and how they're funded, it's Ben Sandberg, the director of Tompkins County Center for History and Culture. So when you think about the funding structure of community nonprofits, there is a direct line to lost revenue across each one of them. A lot of community organizations are reliant on municipal grants, whether that is at a local, state, or federal level. And those grants are all funded by uh, tax dollars. Sandberg explained that a significant number of those grants especially the ones that impact cultural institutions, are funded either by sales tax or by hotel taxes. And both of those have taken drastic hits during the ongoing pandemic. A lot of the ways these nonprofit organizations get funding have been halted completely. This deprives many organizations like the History Center of important revenue sources that they need in order to continue providing their services to their communities and keep their doors open. Although there are some community members in Ithaca supporting these organizations through individual philanthropy, Sandberg said that it's simply not enough. The margins are so thin for community nonprofits that in order just to meet the basic expenses, keeping folks employed, um, keeping essential services delivered, the, the generosity of a few isn't able to make up uh, for the economic hardships of many, many more people in our community. Sandberg said that the other critical piece of fundraising to community nonprofits is the ability to host in-person fundraisers. He said while he has seen incredible creativity from so many organizations trying to do things in a virtual capacity, they just simply don't bring in as much revenue as an in-person program. That shortfall maybe would be enough if you can make up for it in these other spaces. But the fact that almost every revenue source is hit by um, these negative consequences really creates an environment where we will see nonprofits close. And the catch, this is not a problem unique to Ithaca or Tompkins County or any singular community. It's taking place across the United States. Sandberg said that organizations have earned significantly less revenue as a result. Many folks would do programs that would bring in money and for very good public health reasons, 
you either can't do the programs at all or you can't do them at a scale that made them raise the kind of money that you needed. Programs that might have earned $5,000 once upon a time because of capacity limits and social distancing safety protocols, now maybe you can only bring in $1,000. And that difference really makes it hard when every other place you turn to for money isn't coming through. According to him, the community organizations that are doing the best right now are the ones that established endowments prior to the pandemic. Because there has been this divorce from the stock market, that folks who have had money and resources and assets tied up in investments still have some money that they're able to rely on and pull and some earnings and income to sustain them during the crisis. However, this is not a luxury that most nonprofits have, especially the ones that invest most of, or if not all their income into delivering essential services. And during this pandemic, Sandberg says those services are needed now more than ever. It's soul-wrenching for so many people to think and feel and know that this is a time when we are needed and we need to be able to do this, to, to deliver our programs and to reach our communities, and yet at the same time be losing resources, it seems, from every conceivable direction. And it's going to take solutions coming from, from somewhere, um, and it's hard to know what those, what those solutions might be. As the director of the History Center, Sandberg said that more people have been wanting to learn more about local history than ever before. People have some of the extra time to, to be curious about our local history. We still very much have the talents and the, the physical resources to um, respond and engage with our community. But like most community nonprofits, it, we don't have the financial resources to support the necessary staff to reach everybody that we need to. And so the History Center has been creative when searching for solutions to the lack of capital they are facing. And we have a lot of what I think are um, innovative ways of, of providing opportunities to engage with local history while also really uh, reinforcing and supporting public health guidelines. We, I think, as community institutions play an important role in ensuring um, a safe community with low transmissions of COVID-19. Despite the odds the History Center is facing, they have still managed to successfully run in-person events. Back in September, they did an in-person cornhusk doll making program with an indigenous artist. They ran the same program back in September of 2019, where they had up to 60 kids in a room making cornhusk dolls. That was September 2019. This year, September 2020, um, instead of having that many kids in a room, we hired the artist to do more sessions over the same day. Um, we still didn't reach as many, as many families and people in community as we did previously, um, but we were able to, I think, provide a lifeline to hopefully what will be a better fall next year. This month, the History Center is providing some virtual activities that people can do on their own. One of those events is a virtual graveyard scavenger hunt. We have, again, an in-person event sort of spread out during a day at the end of October up at the Grove Cemetery in Trumansburg. But we've also designed it so that you can use this scavenger hunt in any graveyard. 
Um, and graveyards are a great place to be socially distant. Sandberg said the point of an event like this is to get people to think about the local history of their community, but they're not making profit off it. The few events that they do make profit off of, like the haunted history tours of downtown Ithaca, the organization is not able to have as many people participate due to social distancing protocols. Folks are thirsty for this kind of experience right now in these kinds of programs if they can be done safely from a public health standpoint. Sandberg believes that many organizations are searching for a lifeline to get them through this pandemic in the best shape possible, but that many will fail to do so. There are many who aren't going to be able to make it. And we will we will lose vital community organizations. Yet Sandberg still has some hope. I have some faith in American ingenuity and being able to to meet those needs, but um, it's it's a tragic and in my mind unnecessary loss. And I hope that there is relief from somewhere to make sure that more organizations will survive than than the ones that we lose. Sandberg believes that the most important action community organizations can take right now is being transparent with their communities about their struggles and letting people know how they're able to pitch in and help. The more organizations are more vocal about it, the more likely that that help will come from somewhere. Um, And I know that I have been pushing and working with state advocacy organizations and that kind of stuff. You know, I also want to be clear that I think folks like our uh, county government who pre-coronavirus provided a ton of support for these communities and has had to cut that funding. They aren't cutting it because they want to. Their financial challenges are just as big as all of the community organizations. There isn't throwing people under the bus for maliciously withholding money. It's just not there. And it's unclear whether there are new channels to replace them. Now, this is only an introduction to what I hope is a number of episodes that can illustrate the problems community organizations are currently facing, and more importantly, what we can do as individuals to help. As Ben Sandberg pointed out, the more vocal and transparent these organizations are about these issues, the more likely they are able to find help. If you are involved with any community organization and have a story to tell, you can email me at antoniojfermi at gmail.com. You can also find me on Twitter at Antonio underscore Fermi, where you can follow my coverage on this topic. For WICB News, I'm Antonio Fermi. This is Ithaca Now on WICB. I'm Tara Lynch. Thanks for sticking with us. Across the state, schools are reopening to in-person learning, but not quite all the way. Correspondent Deanna Huisa reached out to teachers and students of Ithaca High School, now adjusting to their hybrid system of teaching and learning. Jay Bradley and Jordan Broking also contributed to this piece. As students and teachers get used to the hybrid learning, positives and negatives have emerged for the online slash in-person mixed learning that teachers of the Ithaca City School District are now having to deal with. Ithaca High School first started school on September 15th, whilst in-person classes began on October 5th. I spoke to some teachers on their experience. Both had strong opinions about the hybrid way of learning. Samuel Innes, an English teacher, said that some students can be easily distracted when they're learning online. This can be a hard place to actually keep control of the students while teaching his course. I think some kids like it, but they don't have to come to the building. Some kids are totally disengaged. Like they came to the building to see their friends and it's like, and they would do school as like an afterthought. <laughs> school is like the center of their social world. Um, 
and if they're not if they're doing virtual, they could care less. I, there's I've had a, like uh, two two or three students in my five classes who have not not even signed on to one meeting, or maybe at the very beginning signed on to a meeting and they're like, eh, and I've never seen them again. And like the deans, the APs have called visited you know now they're doing home visits to try to get some of those kids involved but, but there's challenges with the tech too i think it's overwhelming technology slow connections navigating five classes and canvas and meeting times and asynchronous days and changing schedules and rotating schedules has overwhelmed some kids and families maybe with multiple children and they've given up so i don't i don't know if I, if I could contact those kids, I would know, but some are just not there with us. And it's a bit different when it first went online in March. That's what's happening in our world, and it was very imminent. And so it, it gave me the mentality. And I also just, just I had just had a baby in March, uh, my second child. And I was also like, it made, just having to do that sudden switch, I could easily tell myself, we're going to do the best we can with this and be okay. And I'm going to adapt what I already would have done with you all, cut some stuff that I know we're not going to be able to do and just make it a, a worthwhile experience for the last couple of months. And now I feel like starting a new semester, we've had a lot of time to plan. As a just, we should have had more time than we did, than we had, but we didn't know about this model until very recently. And I just, uh, I, don't, I don't feel as, I don't feel as comfortable with it. I, I'm kind of upset that it's not, uh, that I hadn't, I wish I would have known what model we were doing. So I could have, I spent the summer planning for a different model. So he says planning was difficult. You're adapting everything, every single lesson, every single handout, every single assignment has to be adapted to fit with our new our new time frame and model, and it's it's challenging. It's very challenging. It's, it's wearing me thin. Uh, I walked out of here on Tuesday after the second day of the hybrid model, just like a like a defeated man, like tail between the legs, just like uh, like hunched over. It felt like I'd been like just beaten. Some things the school does, though, helps. You know, you have that day off asynchronous day where you're meeting with, take the mask off, meeting with students on in your office hours from home. You're able to talk to them without the mask on, have some good conversations. Just focus on one thing at once, not the screen and everything else out there. Not only the way that school is run changed, but the high school schedule changed as well. Ithaca High School media teacher Jonathan Shine says... We've switched from normal eight periods a day to a block schedule. So we've got four periods in the day and a lunch in the middle of that. So there's only one lunch period, but it's alternating days. So we got A, C days and B, D days. So A, C days, I got EDM. That's English digital media. And B, D days, I've got media arts. But they've recently been making adjustments to the schedule, giving teachers different duties and things like that. With students being given the chance between online and in-person and only half of in-person students being there each day, it creates some weird classes. I'm only gonna have half of my in-person students for English digital media, let's say. I only have half of those in-person students on Monday, and I'll see the other half of those in-person students on Thursday. Uh, everybody's attending class virtually, though, at the same time. So I think the challenge is going to be, well, the biggest one for my class, my classes are all computer-based. We do a lot of video editing and audio editing and stuff like that. Students that are in-person will only have the iMac computers for one class period. They only have it for an hour and a half a week. So I think challenge number one is the fact that we have to just cross off using the Adobe suite altogether because it's not fair that kids only get an hour and a half a week. Challenge number two is having to juggle having students in person and virtual at the same time. Challenge number three is uh, wearing a mask and navigating the general health concerns while 
being in the building around kids. Granted, I counted, I've only got seven kids in a room, maximum. But what do students think? Well, it's a mix. One student from Ithaca High School, Bethany Mortlock, says that she can actually do better online than I do in person, which is kind of opposite of kind of what I've been hearing, but I feel like I'm doing better online. Everything we do is like through Google Meets right now, and we also got this new software system called Canvas, and that's like Google, it's like Google Classroom, but like harder to understand. But I'm doing a lot better online. I think I'm actually going to go completely virtual because I'm doing so much better. <laughs> she says that the ability to do other things on her own time makes it better for her and that you can find a comfortable location. And like you can grab a snack or go to the bathroom, you know, and it's just so much nicer. Are there any cons to the online learning? Yeah, I'd say you don't get as much help. Like it's not as personalized. Um, yeah, because I think the main reason I thought about going back is because I feel like I get more one-on-one -on -one attention. At the end of all of this, hybrid learning has got some mixed opinions from both students and teachers. Hybrid learning is still planned to go on into the foreseeable future, and challenges will keep having to be met. I have a few teachers who I feel like could do better, and I have like a couple of teachers who I think are doing an amazing job, and I'm like so impressed by them. <laughs> Like, mainly my BOCES teacher, I think she's doing fantastic, but my IHS teachers, some, some of them are doing great, I think. Um, some of them, I think, could be paying more attention to virtual people. For WICB News, I'm Dina Huisa. This is Ithaca Now on WICB. I'm Tara Lynch. I hope you're having a great Sunday evening. We move on to more news. Over the summer and fall, protests sparked in the Ithaca area and throughout the country for the Black Lives Matter movement. Dr. Nia Nunn, a local activist for the community and professor at Ithaca College, spoke with Hamadri Saith to discuss the Black Lives Matter movement, the history leading up to it, and what comes next. Black Lives Matter, a movement given that name by Alicia Garza, Patrice Cullors, and Opal Tameri in 2013, but the meaning of which is something black and colored people have attempted to explain for centuries. A different skin color does not make anyone less equal, less human. Ithaca has recently seen a lot of tumult surrounding this topic, with the opposing Black Lives Matter and Back the Blue protests the recent defacing and repainting of Ithaca's first Black Lives Matter mural and concerns surrounding the possible closing of Southside Community Centre, which has been confirmed by the centre to be false as they are in fact not closing. But beneath all of the chaos, what does the idea of Black Lives Matter truly stand for? What can be done to really understand and follow through on the ideas of anti-racism and loving blackness? Dr. Nia Nunn, Chair of the Southside Community Centre Board of Directors and Associate Professor at Ithaca College's Department of Education has insight to share. I was born and raised in Ithaca and actually born and raised on that campus. Um, and uh, as part of my childhood, I grew up in Southside Community Center as one of the many spaces, um, a historically black community center. I was a little girl, you know, I was a part of a predominantly, predominantly black Girl Scout troop 
um, growing up in this predominantly white Ithaca, you know, and so that was significant what our mothers did for and with us. Um, and for, for many of us in that, you know, in terms of exposure throughout Ithaca, you know, the camping, the consciousness of our history, you know, I was little when I learned about Harriet Tubman walking down Cleveland Avenue or Frederick Douglass being in the church. The Southside Community Center is an almost 100-year-old organization that works to empower and inculcate self-pride within the African-American citizens of Greater Ithaca and is a community resource center. It was founded by a group of African-American women called the Francis Harper Women's Club and was incorporated in 1934. And Eleanor Roosevelt came to visit in 1938 to acknowledge the work that was happening. Um, James L. Gibbs was the first um, executive director and he was the executive director for 10 years there. And what I love about it is Lucy Brown, who is, I think she's 87 or 88 now, Lucy Brown, a living, amazing um, black woman. She's one of the founders of INHS and she's, she's one of the main storytellers. And I, I have, I've, I've, I've been recording as much as I can too. And I, I honor her and many, many other um, community mothers. But anyway, she was a little girl when Eleanor Roosevelt came to visit, like, who gets to connect with somebody who is there? Dr. Nunn acknowledges Eleanor Roosevelt as an exceptional white figure who is an inspiration not just for her own ideas, but also for what she learned and accepted into her life. Um, but Eleanor Roosevelt, man, her trans transformation is powerful to read about, her journey to consciousness, right? And sometimes I tell my mostly white students, I'm like, y'all need role models. <laughs> And I'm putting Eleanor Roosevelt on the list, um, not to make her a white savior, but at least her journey and what she was able to unpack. And, and a lot of that came from, as I've learned about her, um, Black women who challenged her, right? And who, like, she would do a lot of writing, a lot of exchanging, especially with this college student from Howard. Her name is Pauline. And these black women would challenge her and just be like, no, don't call us darkies, blah, blah, blah. And like, and like educate her and she would back and forth with them. And, and it was just a humanizing exchange. Believe it or not, Ithaca had its own encounter with the Ku Klux Klan back in the early 20th century. Dr. Nunn, when talking about that time, pointed out that one of the most upsetting things for her to see was an image with a young white boy being filled with these messages of hate. You know, the painful part of the picture that you'll find is in there, there's this little white boy and he's just learning. And he's like, you know, and so we talk about the dynamics of like him versus the kids that come through our program and particularly the white kids who are learning to love blackness at like three, four and five years old. You know, their conversation, it's just, and they, I've, we've been teaching the purpose of Black Lives Matter, the Black Lives Matter movement since its official inception, right? So when Sandra Bland was murdered, we have a whole dance routine about her death and her life. And we were able to teach the two, three and four-year-olds about the relationship between the Black Lives Matter movement and the anti-lynching movement, right? to say like, this ain't new, <laughs> right? Like we've had to fight this level of violence in multiple ways and with multiple words and ways of like insisting on mattering, right? And so it it just becomes, and, and so it's wild. Like, do you remember the H&M um, 
uh, I teach this 100% human lesson, right? Where I teach two and three and four-year-olds when I'm teaching them about the black-white dichotomy and the history of this black-white stuff. And I teach them that, you know, once upon a time, white people and people of European descent were taught were taught that they were superior. <laughs> they were taught that, you know, do be black or a person of African descent, that you're three fifths of a human being, that you're closer to that of a monkey than that of a white person. And this is a lesson that was taught for hundreds and hundreds of years. There was science to support this idea. There's, you know, and when you tell two and three and four year olds, they're like, what? And so we have this thing where I have them shout, that ain't right. You know, if there's some injustice, you're allowed to like say it at any time. You're allowed to jump up and like just scream it. And so I'm teaching them this story and they're all like, that ain't right. And I'm like, that ain't right. So let's teach a new lesson. And so I teach them, you know, I am 100%. They shout human. You are 100% human. We all shout human. So we've been doing that for years. Dr. Nunn also talks about how it's actually harder for her to teach these concepts when it comes to adults and young adults. I think the biggest thing for me is that people underestimate children, little people, young people. And, and I find that in my racial consciousness work, when I'm able to, especially with older people, young adults like yourselves or older people, I have to get at your, your heart you know, your emotion, yeah, your emotions and, and get into childhood with you, you know? And I'm like, okay, no, 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 go back. Where's that come from? Where'd you hear that? Where are the roots? Go deeper, go deeper, go deeper. When was the first message? When was it? And then you're like, <gasps> right? And so it ends up being really um, uh, rewarding and, and transformative. She reiterates the importance of being anti-racist as opposed to simply being not racist. I think it, it, all of this work requires a glorious self-study, um, one that has us appreciating and being critical of our individual selves and our collective selves. So then that's why I love doing things like role-playing, like playing around with, so I'm gonna let somebody say something stupid and I want you to practice responding you know, and like practice the different emotions, practice the different, like what happened to your body? Are you getting sweaty? Are you nervous? Are you like, this is intense stuff. But so the idea of anti-racism, this is why it's like, it's one of those things where it's like, oh, it's such a golden term and concept, but people are pissing me off. <laughs> it's like, we have a way as human beings of taking words and concepts and just whitewashing them, watering them, diluting them, shifting them, uh, you know, almost, and it's, I like, I have receipts of like mad people and entities pushing back on me for years with that term, you know, and the dynamics of like an anti-racist approach to concepts, like, you know, recognizing, okay, the racism is here. So the work is interrupting it versus I don't see racism. It's not here, right? That's a whole nother approach. If we just like, we're all on the same page now, let's do the work, you know, and now like, you know, but it's like, there's a way honestly, where I'm just, I'm studying how freely and uh, just 
you know, there's a level of depth that I'm already hearing lost and I'm like already finding ways to interrupt it. I'm like, mm, not so anti-racist, sounds like racist reform. <laughs> right? Dr. Nan comments on the Blue Lives Matter protests that have emerged in various instances across the nation in opposition to Black Lives Matter and what they mean for the people on either side of the conversation. You know, I always tell people, Alicia Garza wrote a love letter to Black people and in it, she ended by emphasizing that Black Lives Matter, you know? And so I, I always love to, to bring that up, especially when I'm teaching, like if I'm teaching school-wide programs for Black Lives Matter at school, I want them to know the roots. And one, that this was a young Black woman um, who also identifies as queer, who took this stand that now is like, you know, she and a, a, a group of other um, young Black women. So anyway, I always like to make sure that I, I, I emphasize that because even like, you know, so the all lives matter or the blue live, but you know, that's once again, it's just, it's a historical reality of, of, a, of a sort of a Eurocentric, a white response to something, right? It's like, you just, you know, just, it's, it's, it's a colonizing um, uh, sort of uh, uh, it, it, it aligns with colonization, like the colonizing of an idea. <laughs> You know, the colonizing of a concept, you know, it's like the, there's and, and, and to and with the blue lives concept, um, I, you know, I grew up in Ithaca with, interestingly enough, a lot of black police officers that were um, that were kids when my father was an Ithaca college student. Uh, you know, coaching football, right? So there was a way in which um, <clears throat> that community policing concept was um, has depth for me. Um, <clears throat> however, I also know and <clears throat> have been taught enough about. Um, sorry, my uh, ten-year-old is 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 switching cords. Um, <laughs> I've been taught about the, the history of policing, right? And, and elements of its roots in this country and the structure of policing and its slave catching mentality and structure and purpose. Um, so there's no, I was telling somebody the other day, there's no reinventing or restructuring something that we don't know and understand the history of. Um, but then there's some folks that do understand history and are quite proud of that history and exercise that, you know, and maybe find different ways. It's kind of like, you know, justifying the, 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 the Confederate flag or something. It's, you know, in terms of the historical piece, I, you know, I don't want to denounce uh, folks who are, are honoring a history, especially like familial stuff, right? You know, folks who were, who's Grant was in the Navy and the army and the, this, you know, and it's like, I get like the, 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 the preciousness of of understanding our our, our history and and connecting to it, um, but today the evidence is 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 quite clear. It's it's quite explicit, and um, and so sometimes it just feels almost like 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 a twilight zone or something. You know, this is the 2020 version of 
all these other uh, you know times that we can highlight. And so what I love about my passion and the passion that I share with so many people at a South Side or organizations like Black Hand Universal, um, come at my performing arts program, whatever, is <clears throat> the work that we do to interrupt the direct impact that such hate, that such white supremacy, that such any of the, you know, the phobias, the all of that, that that um, we are engaging in educating ourselves and educating our community about what it takes to interrupt internalizing that stuff. Well, what about the concept of inclusivity, an idea now promoted for spaces spanning from corporate buildings to college campuses? Yeah, I think the biggest thing um, is actually to even interrupt that this idea of including others right? I need people to study their own stuff, you know? And it's like, okay, for example, I, you know, I prepare a bunch of largely white teachers and, and it's, I, what I try and nurture as part of their process is to move away from this othering, 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 and spend enough time studying themselves that they realize they're bringing their other with them, you know, versus I'm just normal, regular, whatever. And let me learn about you or welcome you into my space type of stuff. No, who says I even want to be in your space? Sometimes at Ithaca College, when people talk about inclusive campus and I'm like, y'all are on my campus. <laughs> I'm including you, <laughs> you know? So there is this like concept of agency of space. And so I feel like the message or the lesson or what I encourage is this self-study like who am i where you know what are the elements of my collectivity when i walk into a space what is my experience when i enter a space as a black woman and it's all white you better believe the first thing i notice is this space is all white <laughs> if you are a white person walking into an all-white space how often does it register that that is a completely white space however as an a what has it taken in my life as an able-bodied woman to walk into a space and have a conversation with myself about accessibility and who, and is it because there's certain people in my life personally? Is it because of what I've studied? Is it, what is it that has gotten me to this level of consciousness, this level of awareness, this level of compassion, um, a level of conscientiousness that uh, relevant to a human experience that is not mine, right? What does it take? So that becomes a part of the study too of ourselves. Um, and because it's like I said, you know, being able to make mistakes, being able to in, engage in this journey, but also like my biggest thing that I'm teaching a bunch of two-year-olds now is it's about the, the head, what you think and what you know. It's about the heart, what you feel. And then it's about the feet what you do. And a lot of people like to go head right to the feet and skip. There's a whole lot of that going on or just to the feet with no head and no heart. <laughs> like, and I'm arguing, uh-uh, that if it's the babies, they'll do it. The babies will help to teach. <laughs> there are some efforts towards Black empowerment that may be well-intentioned, but don't necessarily work. 
So I think there's a different level of consciousness around blackness specifically everywhere um, that's happening differently these past few months. Um, it is unfortunate in our history that it has to be so violent for a lot of people, especially white people to wake up, like to have to see the physical. I mean, look at our history, right? It's the hoses on, it's Emmett Till's face. It's George Floyd, you know, but please understand that for us, this is traumatic that for, for us, these, these visuals, these images are, are extremely unhealthy for our psyche. It is, there is nothing empowering, nothing uh, like that, like, like black history month, watching black bodies fly all over the place. That's not empowering. That's not healthy. That doesn't help me love myself. That doesn't help me love blackness. No, it helps white people feel guilty and, and, and recognize the violence associated with this, this history and structure. And so, yeah, you might be able to get at some of their hearts and that's what's happening right now. But meanwhile, we're ongoing carrying and balancing a, a trauma that is so normalized. And so, yes, I, I can acknowledge and even, you know, appreciate a high level of engagement to a degree. I still, there's still a lot to caution about this shit. Like I'm skeptical and I'm appreciative all at the same time. But please understand these this regular exposure. It 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 literally it eats at the insides that sometimes painfully connects us with our ancestors, um, but then has us desperately need messages from them right? Because they, they, they saw it too, or they were there, or it was their flesh that was, that was, that was torn. Um, and so I, that's what I'm concerned about. I'm concerned about the psychological impact. Cause remember what I told you, for me, it's about interrupting how we internalize this shit. So you, to have these regular images as a tool it it does us it does nothing beneficial for us to see our bodies um, being treated as if they are disposable. It's not easy for many to have a lot of these conversations, but in my talk with Dr. Nunn, what was highlighted was that that does not mean they are to be avoided, or worse yet, misunderstood or misrepresented. You know, not only are our black bodies not disposable, our almost a hundred year old black agencies aren't disposable either. For WICB News, I'm Himadri Sait. And that is all for this edition of Ithaca Now.
You can listen to all of our stories on WICB.org. And if you'd like to listen to past shows, follow WICB on SoundCloud and subscribe to Ithaca Now to hear the show anytime, anywhere. Also subscribe to The Latest to hear our daily newscast every weekday. Just search WICB News Presents on your favorite podcast app. For more updates throughout the week, follow WICB News on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. This show would not be possible without the support and assistance from Manager of Television and Radio Operations Jeremy Menard, WICB Station Manager Sam Ives, and Programming Director Lou Barron. We say thank you. Ithaca Now is produced by News Director Jay Bradley with the assistance from News Managing Director Celine Tutar, News Production Director Himadri Saith, and today's correspondents, Antonio Fermi, Dina Huisa, and Jordan Broking. All of the music from our show's intro and outro comes from Dr. Dundiff of Louisville, Kentucky. Have any feedback or story ideas or just want to say hi? Feel free to reach out by emailing news at wicb.org. We will be back next Sunday with a full episode of Ithaca Now at 7 p.m. For now, I'm Tara Lynch, and thank you for listening to Ithaca Now on WICB. Have a great Sunday night.